I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Thinking about having a baby? Don't forget to do the maths first. Plus, we hear from an armchair investor who makes thousands trading from his home. And finally, what's the most precious thing you own? The answer will surprise you. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Lucy Warwick-Ching, the FT Money Digital Editor, bringing you all this week's money news. If you're applying for a new job and are thinking about starting a family in the next few years, the last thing you want to do is ask HR about their maternity pay package. Despite more modern attitudes in the workplace, everyone knows there are still bosses who wouldn't give you a job if they thought you were going to get pregnant in the near future. Eight out of ten people said in a recent Mumsnet survey that they wouldn't ask potential employers about parental leave policies because they feared it would make a job offer less likely. The problem is that this makes it impossible to make informed judgments about job offers. My latest family money column on this topic has generated hundreds of comments from readers. One reader wrote to us saying, Large employers should be obliged to do more on maternity, paternity pay and parental leave. Until there's more equality, there will be discrimination. Another said, I completely agree on the need for greater transparency and a reporting requirement being the way to do it. I couldn't even find my company's maternity policy when I was an employee, let alone an outsider looking in. But what can be done about it? Justine Roberts, Mumsnet founder, joins me in the studio today. Justine, you surveyed your readers about this topic. What did you find out? Well, the first thing to say is that two thirds of our users said it was difficult or impossible to find out about maternity policies, paternity policies while they were looking for jobs. And yet a large number of them, 84%, said it was a really important factor when choosing an employer. And as you said just then in your introduction, eight out of 10 are reluctant to ask an interview for really good reasons, actually. Mm. We also found when we asked employers whether they would discriminate against pregnant women that 72% said they would. (laughs) So you know, this is not uh, surprising that women are reluctant to ask, but it's really important to them. So clearly there's a mismatch here and uh, it's something we want to get into and, and encourage firms to publish their policies because it's, you know, women are being discriminated against effectively. Mm-hmm. You're actually calling for them to publish their policies and be transparent about this. But where are you at with that campaign? 
Well, we so we think there's a really good opportunity to do it along with the gender pay gap. I think the gender pay gap reporting has proved that not only does it, you know, provide transparency, it also encourages behaviours. So it nudges. I'm on the board of a insurance company, and it, it, having to publish that really puts it front of mind about have you got the right policies? What's everyone else's policies? What are we? How do we sit in the space versus our competitors? So there's two good reasons to publish it. One is to just simply allow people to know uh, what the policies are and whether they're, they're good enough and whether that means they want to apply for a job or not. But secondly, to nudge the behaviour and make sure that companies are having a race to the top, as it were, around parental leave and not uh, just hiding everything under the mat. Um, and where we're at is we've, you know, we are talking to a lot of big employers about it and some have um, come around and, and already published, which is fantastic. Uh, We will definitely be talking to government about it. We've raised it already with some of the politicians who come on Mumsnet for a web chat. And I think I wouldn't be surprised at all if we had a general election that it would be included. Or indeed, I think Penny Mordaunt's office are, are discussing the issue now. So it may well happen before then. I think it's a no brainer of a policy. And uh, we'd like it will be adopted quite soon. So if you're listing big companies, you might as well get on and publish because it's probably coming your way. Well, watch this space. <laughs> and are there in terms of the maternity and paternity pay packages, are some companies better than others? Like, how does it vary? I kind of assumed naively before I got pregnant that everyone was pretty much the same. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I think there are some very far forward-thinking employers who who view it as a kind of point of difference and a recruitment tool and particularly the ones that are concerned around things like gender pay gaps and are competing very heavily for talent. So a lot of the professional services companies offer excellent packages in in terms of maternity and paternity, whereas some, some places you will just get the basic statutory minimum so as I know you've done some work on this it's a phenomenal amount of money when you add it up over a year of of leave for someone earning you know a good salary it makes a huge difference and it's even worse for some of the dads like we were hearing stories about some of these companies that are just so backwards thinking they're just giving the fathers two weeks Mm. of um, statutory pay Mm. and then at the other end of the spectrum there are some companies that are offering much more and they're really going into the detail and they're kind of equalising the pay. So, I mean, I guess that's another area that they need to be looking at. Again, it's a minority, but a few big firms have begun to, yeah, offer equal benefits. So Aviva, I know, and Unilever, and indeed Mumsnet, I'm proud to say, we offer equal maternity and paternity pay. It's really important because all the evidence says that the more time dads spend with their kids in the first year, the more involved they are throughout their child's lives. And then you get the knock-on benefit of it not all being, a, 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 you know, so much of the responsibility for kids appears to fall on the woman. And, and we wonder why there's a glass ceiling. It's because women are picking up all this other slack too. So it's it's just a massive societal change that it, and it starts here. It starts at paternity leave. And we see that dads want to take more mm-hmm. paternity leave. And the reason shared parental leave hasn't really worked is because economically it doesn't work. So you have to financially incentivize dads to do it. Some firms have already got there. I think it's it can be viewed as a big cost, but actually in terms of what it offers for women, I think it's massively important. So we, we're campaigning for 
more paternity leave because of what the knock-on effects for women, which are tremendously uh, helpful in a world where, you know, we, we still have a massive gender pay gap. Lots to think about there. Um, thanks very much to uh, Justine Roberts of Mumsnet. You can read my column about maternity pay now on ft.com forward slash money. And while you're listening, the Financial Times is looking to hear from new parents about parental pay packages. You can find the link to our survey at the bottom of my article at www.ft.com forward slash money. It seems everyone wants to get into trading these days, but where should you start? Freelance journalist Nick Johnson placed his first online share deal in June 2016 after what he says was eight years of cautious self-education and preparation. Almost three years later, he's trading full-time from the comfort of his armchair at home. The rise of the online service, which allows people to invest without using a financial advisor, has facilitated this growth in so-called armchair investors. Before this, most people invested after taking advice from a financial advisor or stockbroker. I'm joined down the line by Nick to talk me through the reality of trading from home. So, Nick, how did you make the move into online trading? Well, it certainly wasn't expected. During the 2008 financial crisis, I found myself, you know, I had been a journalist for the previous time in my career. And I felt during the financial crisis somewhat illiterate about everything to do with finance and like any journalist, I'm sure you're the same. I, you know, I see everybody that I run into every day as someone who can tell me more about what's going on. So I kept kind of grabbing people who uh, worked in finance, neighbors or friends of friends or people I randomly met and was sort of gr- uh, found myself grilling them and became really interested in it. And parallel to that, just start to self-educate myself about what is finance, what is the stock market, and, and just went sort of deeper and deeper until I started to find people that whose approach really resonated with me, which would be Daniel Loeb, founder of Third Point, Ray Dalio, <coughs> founder of Bridgewater Associates, and, and Stephen A. Cohen, who founded SAC Capital, and, and obviously now Point72. And once I kind of found these three people, their stories, and the way that they went about finance felt as irreverent as people that I had previously been interviewing as a thin arts journalist. So that meant spending time with, you know, Ronnie Wood or Rod Stewart or Keith Richards or Lou Reed and so on. And I sort of felt like Daniel Loeb or Ray Dalio, they were very similar personality types. And it really interested me that they seemed to be on the fringe of finance, but at the same time, like these great sort of gigantic minds that had tremendous influence. So I started looking at what they did and I realized that Daniel Loeb just started Third Point from home. Ray Dalio started Bridgewater um, in a two-bedroom apartment in New York. And I sort of thought, wow, it sounds to me like anybody who has some money to trade and who understands what they're doing and the risks involved could literally just be at home and start doing it. And so I got really excited and it was a long process of, I would say, eight years from the first sort of ignition of being interested in finance to actually placing a trade. But during that time, I, I definitely sort of studied what those three particular people did and, and got really excited about the possibility to do that from home. Mm. And what about the reality of trading from home? I mean, it must be, it sounds like a very different existence from going out and interviewing these kind of big name personalities. Yes. Yeah. Well, I suppose on, uh, on the one hand, it's very similar to the work that I've always done as a journalist. It's the same as when I was a child, even just, you know, massive excitement for new information and 
And I feel like whether you're a journalist writing about music or film or health or politics, all of which I've done, or becoming a retail investor for the stock market, it's still about that tremendous kind of excitement for new information. So really, I'm not doing anything different. It creates a similar filter where I'm just always thinking about things. And also, there are strange sort of um, commonalities in that my very first job as a journalist was <clears throat> to basically go around all of the worst sort of dive bars in London trying to discover the next big thing for the music industry. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, the skills in a weird way of, of sort of going out seven nights a week and seeing one terrible band or artist after another, and then it, once in a while you'd say, oh my God, this one's amazing. And they would go on to become big. It's much like picking a stock. You're, mm. you're basically you're, you're trying to spot the winners at any given time and, and what might be happening circumstantially to allow that. But you know, in terms of uh, of trading from home, of course, it's not. I don't think it's for everybody. I mean, you know, when people say, "Can you make a living off it?" the question of that is, are you prepared to do what you need to do to make a living off it? Which it's a, it's really like a continuous job. If I'm not asleep, I, I am doing it it's all the time, and that suits me. You know, I, I love to work really long hours. Um, I find it very exciting. But if somebody found it difficult to make decisions and mm-hmm. wanted to work a, a Tim Ferriss four-hour week, I think they should stay away from mm-hmm. it. And what about the finances? Can, can you actually make a living out of it in terms of the finances of it? Sure. I mean, I think I think when people think of the stock market, they think of extremes, which either people have made a fortune and we see sort of caricatures of that or condemnations of it or championing of it. Um, or on the other side of it, I think we read all the stories of people losing everything and terrible kind of fails, you know, on all scales, whether at banks or individuals. But I think when you when you're working with it, certainly I would say to anyone who starts as a retail investor, you have to think a little bit like you're starting a business which you are and all the time you're looking to you know start each week <clears throat> with more on Monday than you had on the previous Monday and it, obviously it becomes exponential and those are the stories of obviously Daniel Loeb and Ray Dalio who I think I think they didn't have a huge amount of trading capital when they first started just as individuals trading but obviously you look at the enormous scale of Bridgewater Associates or third point today the goal is just you know every day you want to try to end the day with more money in your portfolios than you did the day before and obviously that's what you're trying to do you know i think people make lots of mistakes along the way of deciding to kind of take out giant chunks or uh, sell things too early or obviously not keep redeploying profits and so on but at the same time it follows a very kind of artistic model so my background, you know, obviously as a journalist, but also writing books. I've written 14 books. And so the sequence of that, I'm very used to kind of not being on like a monthly salary, if that makes sense. Sure. So um, if you're trading full time as an individual, you're very much kind of working on a similar sequence. So you're looking all the time at like, well, I'm graphing this particular investment asset to peak at this point, And you obviously want to align that with what you're what your needs are and do your best to kind of keep growing it all the time and and not get greedy and want to kind of put it in your pocket. Mm -hmm. And finally, can you tell us about your kind of best and worst trades? You talk about the extremes of trading, but can you just give us a couple of examples? 
Um, yes, certainly. I mean, the very good trade was actually the very first one I placed, which was in Pampa Energy, an energy company in Argentina. And from the beginning, um, my sort of initial real sort of investment concept was just to simply have a portfolio of Argentinian equities at one particular time. And obviously, I look back and think, yes, I've met lots of people who've got sort of 20 year finance careers who laugh and say, oh, you must be absolutely crazy to um, be a retail investor entering the world of investment only kind of you know uh, doing stock picks in Argentina. But um, in the case of Pampa Energy, it was, you know, it was, I'd really studied it. And that was proof, you know, I think, well, it went up quite massively. Um, I think I bought it in the like early 20, 20, 22 dollars or something. And um, obviously it was at 71, 72 at an absolute peak on the back of uh, excitement for Macri's ruling. And at the very worst end of it, I would say there was a gold mining company, which I was quite excited about. And I didn't go crazy. I, I put, you know, I bought like 900 pounds of shares. And I was quite excited about the company. I had a good feeling about it. I'd looked at everything in detail. And pretty much as soon as I bought the shares, they sort of a newsletter came out that they various disasters started happening, you know, climate, machinery, finance, debt, financing, everything mm-hmm. you think of. And they were not finding gold. So very quickly, people kind of saw problems and started to sell. And so I watched that sort of 900 pound um, investment diminish down to sort of 450 pounds. And around about that time, there was an opportunity to go to the company's AGM. So I thought, I'm going to go along and just mm. see what um, see what's happening. And I always kind of think when I'm investing, AGMs are quite useful, but Many years ago, I went to Morocco on holiday with my family, and we went to stay at this hotel. And the woman who was the manager just stared into my eyes for about one minute when we arrived. And then I said, do you need our passports? And she said, no, I've looked into your eyes, and I I know that you're good to stay here. I don't need documentation. So I always think of her when I go to something like this AGM. I just had a really good look in the eyes of all the directors, and I just had a bad feeling. Mm. So... I sold out at a, obviously at a horrible loss um, as soon as I left that AGM, mm. and it looks like things got a lot worse since. So, you know, you're going to kind of make mistakes as a retail investor because you don't have a team around you who can say there is another reason why you shouldn't buy that stock, which obviously you don't have that with those resources. Thanks very much for sharing your experiences, Nick Johnston. You can read his article, The Secret Life of an Armchair Trader, now on ft.com forward slash money. As we get older, many of us are guilty of wasting the precious time we have left doing work we don't enjoy or spending money on things that don't improve our well-being. Various academic studies have tried to calculate the value of time and how it affects our working and spending decisions. Unsurprisingly, most show that people can boost their well-being by doing meaningful work and spending money to outsource tasks they dislike. Giving up some of his precious time to talk to us about why life is for the living and why we should maximise what we spend our time on is Jason Butler, the FT's wealth man. Welcome, Jason. Hi, Lucy. You make the point that lifestyle spending decisions cost more than money. Can you explain what you mean? Yeah, I mean, unless you're completely financially independent and you don't have to work for money, It's not the money itself that anything you spend costs. It's the time that you have to spend to earn the money. And so in very simple terms, it's not just what you get paid. You've got to take off the tax. You've also got to add on the time that it takes you to get to and from work and all the associated things that come with doing work. 
so that, say, the true money you're getting after tax is, say, £20 an hour, and you buy a £200 coat, it hasn't cost you £200, it's cost you 10 hours. A £2,000 holiday has cost you 100 hours of work. And so that's really important. And if you're doing work you don't like or that's very stressful, you've got to ask yourself, is it worth you doing that work to buy that good or service? So it's about being more mindful about the true cost of your lifestyle. Now you put it that way, I'll uh, question every uh, purchase that we make. So why is, <laughs> why is how we use our time so important to overall well-being? Well, it's, it's really important because if you are doing things that are not meaningful, enjoyable or satisfying, then your overall well-being, your mental and physical health can is likely to be affected. So as I, I refer to a brilliant book in the article, which I can't say on, on the line because of the title, but basically what they're saying is that when you're spending time doing work to earn money, but the work itself is meaningless, pointless, just useless really, you are wasting that time when you could be doing even more meaningful work. It might be lower paying work, but more meaningful for you. So if you could, say, adjust your lifestyle costs, to doing a lower paid job that was more meaningful, that might give you overall better well-being. Or it could be that the time that you spend out of work, rather than collapsing in a heat watching Game of Thrones or, or, or guzzling through a couple of bottles of wine, that perhaps there are other pastimes that you could do outside of work that would be more meaningful. And they don't always involve spending money. Sometimes they do. So it's about that intentionality. And so what are your top tips for getting a better return on life? Well, I mean, that's, a, that's a amazing. I would expect that from the FT, a question like that. Um, what's the meaning of life? I think one exercise that I really found useful that, that many of your listeners and readers may find useful is to sit down one day and write down a list of all the things that make you happy in life. And I mean, it could be anything from like one of the things I put down was sitting on the bench in my garden as the sun's rising, sitting with my two dogs. Uh, dogs drinking a cup of coffee mm-hmm. or it could be something really involved like you know paragliding or something but write that list down of all the things that make you happy and work out the role of money if applicable to any of them and then compare that to how you're living your life now uh, and give an example I, I like playing the piano and I bought the piano 10 years ago so the cost is, is gone but I stopped playing as much and I said to myself I'm going to play 15 minutes every day I can always do 15 minutes now I don't do it every day but pretty much now I'm playing five days a week I'm enjoying it I'm learning new pieces and it doesn't matter what the day is doing or what's happened externally it's my little bit of flow it's my bit of thing and it, it's something I got out of the habit of doing it wasn't until I wrote the list and that's actually the, the list of my things is on my website it might inspire people mm to actually write their own list and and just work out that role of money and work out is that life you're leading now in line with that list of the things that make you happy and what is the role of money, if any, in achieving that. Make sense? Yes. And so tell me your website again. Tell readers your website. jason-butler.com. And you can see it in one of my blogs. It's uh, two or three weeks ago. I talk about the true, true price of happiness. Um, but, you know, just to give you inspiration, my list will be different from yours. Yours will be different. And here's the thing. That list will change through life. And even if you've just had a marriage breakup or you're a young, pressured parent or you're just about to retire or you feel like you're under the cosh or you've had some mental health issues, it's still a great exercise to do because it's about the intentionality of just designing your life. And you're not looking for perfection here. You're just looking to make progress and course corrections and just take a step back. 
Thanks very much there to Jason Butler with some information about how not to waste the precious time we have left. Jason Butler, the FT's wealth man. You can read his column online now at ft.com forward slash money. That's it from the FT Money Show this week. To get in touch with our team of writers or to ask one of our experts to look into a financial dilemma, please email us our address money at ft.com or tweet us at FT Money. And don't forget, you can read all the articles mentioned and more on our website, ft.com forward slash money. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.